Next Chapter Podcasts. I don't know if this is everybody's opinion, but this is probably the most famous three-corded intro for sitting in a corner and cutting yourself thinking about past loves. The song is Boys Don't Cry. It's by The Cure off their 1980 album, Boys Don't Cry. And it's also number 438 out of 500 on the Spotify original, The 500, with me, Josh Adam Myers, the King Cadougal, the King of Fleas. Thank you for joining me on the only podcast that's going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the top 500 albums. And man, this was a good one. I say, I think I feel like I say that every week. You know what I mean? But dude, I'm digging this shit. Hope you guys are too. Thank you to everybody that reached out to me about the Bill Burr Presents on Comedy Central, about the set. I really, really mean this from the bottom of my heart, man. To be able to connect with all of you and see you guys, like, just the, the emails we're getting, just the, the Instagram comments, the Twitter comments, whatever it is. Like, you guys are the shit, and thank you for the kind words, because it was really important to me to get that set on television and especially on such a dope show like Bill Burr Presents The Ringers. The Ringers. Hey, Ringers, do your Instagram stories this week. Don't sleep on your ways to, to spread the word, the gospel of the 500, because I appreciate it, Fleece Army. Give me those 24-hour ads on your social media. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500 and tag me at Josh Adam Myers. Tag our Instagram handle at the 500 podcast and then put a hashtag Fleece Army and then throw a new hashtag Kadoogle or even Doogle I like Doogle Doogle. That might be a new thing. All right, let's get into the record, guys. Released on February 5th of 1980 and produced by Chris Perry, this was the first album by the British post-punk trio The Cure released in the U.S. However, it was basically a compilation of several tracks from their U.K. debut. God, I don't know how to say debut. Debut. From the U.K. album, first album. That's better than debut. Three Imaginary Boys and other songs they recorded between 1978 and 1979. That was when I was born. The intention was to reach more listeners and expand the band's exposure outside of the U.K. The band was originally formed as Malice in West Sussex, England in 1976 by Notre Dame Middle School classmates Robert Smith on vocals and guitars, Michael Dempsey on bass and vocals, and Lawrence Lal Tolhurst on drums, although they went through several lineup changes before becoming a trio and changing their name to The Easy Cure. That's not that bad. The Easy Cure? What is it, Robitussin? What does call yourself? Robitussin. The group played dark, angular, minimalist rock songs with coldly presented, deceptively emotional lyrics, including literary references. In 1977, after winning a talent competition, the band got signed to a German label, although after hearing their demos, including the Albert Camus-inspired song Killing an Arab, they declined to release anything by The Easy Cure. By the time Chris Perry, an A&R representative of Polydor Records, heard that song's demo, the band had already shortened their name to The Cure. Perry liked it and produced it as a single on the independent label Small Wonder in December of 1978. Then they released their debut, Three Imaginary Boys, followed by their second single, Boys Don't Cry. The band then went on their first big tour, opening for gothy post-punk Susie and the Banshees. During that tour, a defining musical moment for the band occurred after Robert Smith was also recruited to replace Banshee's guitarist John McKay, who abruptly quit. As Smith recalled, 
On stage that first night with the Banshees, I was blown away by how powerful I felt playing that kind of music. It was so different to what we were doing with The Cure. Before that, I'd wanted us to be like the Buzzcocks or Elvis Costello, the punk Beatles. Being a Banshee really changed my attitude to what I was doing. That inspired their third single, Jumping on Someone Else's Train, which came out later that year. The band then prepared demos for their second album, 17 Seconds, while the Boys Don't Cry record was being compiled for release in America. Up until then, all the songs were written by the three members, but Robert Smith's desire to make more esoteric music like the Banshees bumped up against Michael Dempsey's vision of being more like pop-punk New Waver's ecstasy, so he was replaced in the band's ever-changing lineup. Boys Don't Cry was well-received in America, and the band began a world tour which showcased their new, darker goth style. It became, and remains their trademark, despite all the upbeat pop-punk hits they put out, as much as frontman Robert Smith's wild explosion of black hair, smeared red lipstick, and baggy dark clothes. And with Smith being the only consistent member during their whole career, as of now, The Cure have put out 13 albums, 2 EPs, 30 singles, sold millions, won a bunch of awards, and in 2019 were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've inspired countless artists including Nine Inch Nails, Placebo, Interpol, My Chemical Romance, The Deftones, The Smashing Pumpkins, and even Adele. And my guest today, man oh man was she influenced by this band, the one and only Margaret Cho. Margaret is one of my favorite comics working today. She's a legend. Maybe you've seen her special, Psycho. Maybe you've seen Cho Dependent. Maybe you've seen Beautiful, Revolution, Assassin, Notorious C-H-O. She is one of my favorites. She was the first Asian American to have a sitcom on network television. She's also a trailblazing advocate for the LGBTQ community and so sex positive. Also, she's got an incredible podcast, The Margaret Show, anywhere you get your podcast. And also, she is so goth, it's not even funny. She was the perfect guest for this episode. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify or anywhere you get your pods. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 438 out of 500. With Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. Margaret Cho and a Margaret Cho and a Cho. I said a Margaret. Oh, 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 Cho. So good. Thank you so much. Excellent. I, I've been working on that for I love actually it. knowing once I booked you, I was like, all right, what song do I sing her into? It's perfect. Thank you. So I sent a Hail Mary hoping that you were a Cure fan and yes. you immediately came back and said you were. I'm a huge Cure fan. Tell me tell me about your experience. Like how did you first hear about the Cure? Um I well in San Francisco where I grew up, they had uh changed the format of the the classic rock radio station and it was live one oh five new wave. And it was like one of the ways 
wave of like stations that were starting. I think 99X in San Diego was another one. Of course, okay. K-Rock here was another one. They were changing their formats to modern rock. And you were getting a selection of um, these uh, local bands, which in San Francisco, which was super cool. Um, but then you were also getting the, the sort of first new wave British invasion, what they were calling the second British invasions of the 80s. And one of those was The Cure. And I think the first song that I probably heard was either, um, it was a little bit later, actually. So it would have been like Love Cats or The Walk. And um, my first Cure album was Japanese Whispers, which is actually kind of a, I realize it is kind of a B-sides compilation record, it's funny when you have these bands that are so iconic, like The Cure, and you you really have a hard time finding the albums as they were put out back in the day. Oh, yeah. I had a hard time finding this, and then I found yeah. out it was a part of another record. Right. Yeah. Like, Or you you have people putting their, uh, on their streaming service, you have people putting the record together from the bits and pieces that they find. Yeah. So it's really interesting how um, the way that we uh, like listen to music retroactively after after the band is like been around forever and put out a lot of greatest hits compilations you you don't get the full picture of what they were doing with each record so it was a great thing to go back and revisit that yeah so so what year is this this is like what when this is starting to when, get into your life when i was really listening to the cure this is probably 1984 and i also that summer went to england which is like amazing so oh, like yeah. this is like the beginning of goth i mean the 84 85 um i went to england for the summer because my friend was um she was british and so she uh spent the summer holidays with her grandparents in Bournemouth, which is very far <laughs> in the South. I mean, really, it's like, it, that's more like the Jersey Shore of England. If you go to yeah. the North, that's where it's real cold, and that's where all this kind of music is kind of from, I think. Yeah. So you have a different sense of what England is about, but there- Hello, Snooky. how are you? <laughs> it oh, really... it's the situation. It's oh, the, so wonderful. It's the situation. <laughs> Do you want to go GTL? Yes. Jim Tanning Laundry. Oh, <laughs> terrific. And maybe we'll have some plum pudding afterwards, Rookie. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's very different, but uh, we were going, and there was, I think, a there was a goth club that we would go to um, and we would hear a lot of the songs, um, you know, from this particular record, a lot of Cure songs, and uh, also lots of Susie. And, um, oh, Susie and the Banshees. Of, yeah. Wow. For so long, I thought that was sushi. 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 Well, we learn something every day. Mm -hmm. Felice Army. All right. So you're in England. You're going to goth clubs. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, uh, well, at that time, they didn't have goth clothing, really. So you had to kind of piece it together from uh, old ladies' clothes. Like old dead people clothes. <laughs> that that was like kind of like where you would figure out where your goth came from. From yeah. like, um, you know, ruffled shirts that you could wear at um Where'd you get Christmas. that shawl from? From my Aunt Gertie. Yes. Aunt Gertie's goth as fuck. All right. What but about yeah. Mildred? Why well, she don't got shit? You would have to like put together the goth outfit from like velvet suits from the seventies, which yeah. is you know, like your mom's jacket and like men would wear their mom's clothes and uh, you would take that shawl and put it over your head oh. um and make kind of like this mystical like um uh, you know, Lena, Lena Lovitch thing. It was Lena. Yeah. It was all about Lena Lovitch and um, crazy like hair. I had really a weird pink. They were not exactly um, braids. They weren't dreadlocks. They were just kind of 
pink attachments. I don't know exactly how I got my hair like that. It was really long. It was almost down to my waist, and it was very wooly. Um, but they weren't dreads. It was not exactly. It was like extensions, I guess. I must have had extensions of some kind. Sure. And um, yeah, we would go down, and we would go to these goth clubs, and uh, it was everything, everything. And uh, I think my favorite was probably the Mission UK. I love The Damned. Uh, we would watch The Young Ones on MTV in um, America and long for England. Oh. And, um, you know, I was a real uh, Anglophile. I still am. Yeah. Um, and I actually dated a guy who, uh, much later, who uh, is uh, was in uh, the Cure touring group and also he's he was a member of the Psychedelic First and also he is a banshee, but he's not... An earlier banshee, so he was a later, later banshee, yeah. later in the tour. So he's not fully accepted by the banshee community, right? No, they, no. And like, um, dude, <laughs> you're not early banshee. Steve Severin told me, don't <laughs> talk about him as one of the banshees because he's not officially a banshee, but he is in our band. But that's I'm a not- mid-century banshee. <laughs> I just love that so much. There's, yes. there's probably fans of the band out there that are like, no, I, don't, I just I can't I can't recognize them. I know. I, just I don't, can't. I don't came know. In after the fourth album. Yeah. I just can't. So they don't they don't accept it as that. But um, it, I I mean he he sort of helped me like understand a lot of the guitar tones, and um, you know it's it's a very specific kind of playing. If you go back and listen to these records, you you can really hear the hollow tone of the um, Gritch. Tell me about, like, so why The Cure resonated with you at that time. Well, it had to do with this real rejection of the way that rock was. You know, rock used to be these, like, very, very loud, boisterous bands that were hyper-masculine. Yeah, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, you're, like, you know. getting into, like, cause, so I, my favorites were always the glam guys, like David Bowie, of course, and Mark Bolin. Oh, yeah. But you didn't have that sensibility with like Led Zeppelin's very, very masculine. Um, and then you had ACDC and all of the, you know, the stuff that I love, but it's not. Um, the thing about The Cure was that it was sexually ambiguous. Even though you knew they were guys and you knew they were straight, they love cats and they love the color gray. <laughs> and there was something about that that was really appealing. And this guy who wore lipstick and uh, big white puffy shoes and all black but all black and yeah. he was like your perfect goth boyfriend who would kind of wear your makeup but he would eat you out like forever <laughs> which would mess up his lipstick and that's how robert smith got it smeared yeah it was, it was all just that all eating. that pussy eating <laughs> and i mean the love songs were so romantic even yeah. though they're like a little bit quirky and then his voice is like it's like a howl, and it is almost, it's a very animal voice, yeah. which I've, the only other heard, uh, time I've heard a voice like that would be in a current band called the Black Kids, and the guy has that sort of kind of howl, but it's very unusual. You would never really hear it in rock and roll. Yeah. So this is what I, I really think that uh, Robert Smith's voice is probably the most important instrument in The Cure, because it is used not just as like singing, oh, but it's a, an instrument. A hundred percent. I yeah. mean, he is the star of all of this yes and it's like because you can hear this style of guitar playing in this style of music in a lot of the Mm post-punk stuff that was coming out because i don't want to call this new wave
wave. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like this falls into this album in particular falls into more of a post punk. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't. I feel like there's the the beginning of goth. Yeah. Like there's sadness kind of linking. It's very melancholy. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's some like the the songs are kind of poppy mm-hmm. uh, to the point where it's like his his lyrics might be a little sad. Mm-hmm. But but the music is like, oh, this is kind of an upbeat little squiggly do. You is. know what I mean? It doesn't dwell on it like Morrissey and Smith's really dwell on it or even Bauhaus or Peter Murphy really dwell on, on this very dark place um, but the way I think there there is a, a, a real optimism in the way that Robert Smith writes lyrics and the way he sings yeah and um, there's a kind of foppishness that a real dandy you know like you could see his lace like uh, like cuffs getting in caught in the <laughs> guitar strings like it's just a very like when you're playing with like all that like a long cuff like that like fruff he's got a lot of fruff yeah, yeah it's gonna get tangled up in the strings and that's the sort of like thunk that you hear um but it's really i mean it's stylish it, it's like amazing when you can hear a band the way they look yeah oh completely <laughs> you know? uh, completely all right, just so everybody knows, our album is number 438 out of 500. It's a compilation album, Boys Don't Cry by The Cure, released on February 8th, 1980, and produced by Chris Parry or Perry, P-A-R-R-Y. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! 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 The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Uh, so this was my first real like dive into The Cure other than Love Song mm-hmm. and like the hits. Like yeah. I-, I loved that song, uh, Close to Is it Close oh, to yeah, Me? Yeah. But yeah. I liked that they did like a, a B-side electro version of it, mm-hmm. a little bit slower, mm-hmm. Uh I loved that song and I've always liked The Cure and the songs that I heard. The only song that I kind of got tired of was Love Song Mm -hmm. mostly because uh, I had a bunch of friends that I grew up with all jockish type guys that I went to high school with and Mm -hmm. they loved the band 311 Mm -hmm. and I think 311 is the worst music. White people should not do reggae. (laughs) They shouldn't. Uh It's just it's a proven fact. Mm -hmm. We should not. We what are you gonna like what do you know about Ja? You grew up in in Irvine. Do you know what I mean? So uh, they loved 311 so much and 311 covered Love Song Mm. by The Cure Mm -hmm. and four people got married in the early 2000s Mm -hmm. and that was their first dance. Oh, okay, okay. But not The Cure version. Right, right. The shitty 311 version. So I kind of went into The Cure knowing the history but also when I dived into this record I was like, okay, like let's see what this is about. Am I gonna dig it? 
So this is what I originally wrote after mm-hmm. my first pass. I said, it's a good record, but I don't think it showcases why people love The Cure so much. There's a lot that I loved, but it ultimately had a lot of songs that just didn't stick with me. Now, I listened to these albums like eight times. Mm-hmm. So this is what I got on the seventh. I was just like, after a bunch of listens, like I can hear where the influence of The Cure laid upon music in the early 2000s. And a lot of the bands that I loved, like Interpol, Block Party, The Mm. Stills, The Strokes. And then when I did the research and found out that this was a compilation record of Mm -hmm. all their earlier stuff as a way to like hit the U.S. market Mm. and really take off. Yeah. And this is really them before they went fully goth, before Robert started playing guitar and touring with... Susie, Susie, Susie yeah. and He's the Banshees. Yeah. yeah, but this was all before that. And this is kind of like right at the turn where they're about to get really dark and yeah. the goth is really going to come out. Yeah. And knowing what was going on at the time, knowing about all of that stuff, I was like, man, this is a fun record. Yeah. Like even just the way that it starts. So let's dive. Let's dive into the record because we have some really fun songs on here. All right. So the album opens with... Probably the most famous three chords this band has ever played. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter, play the intro for me. You don't have to know The Cure to know this song. Right. This was so great. Uh, This was actually a UK standalone single from 79. And and when I was talking about how this is pre-goth, I feel like this is more proto-emo yeah. than, than proto-goth. Yeah. And it's just a great pop apology to a lover taking responsibility for one's transgressions. Like, tell me about, like, well, how do you feel about this song? I think it's a beautiful song. It's really a meaningful song. This is like the first song that I think that where you feel like the cure is fully realized, the, their potential as a band. And... You know, and and the perspective of men allowing themselves to be emotional, to wear makeup, to be foppish and dandyish, and I still love those words, yeah. <laughs> but they get tons of pussy. Like it's like he wouldn't. He he's not. It's like this rejection of toxic masculinity before we even codified what toxic masculinity was so it's a really I think it's a beautiful song it's a really queer song you know because a lot of queers myself included we really like got into this because it's also like you know it's this rejection of traditional gender roles and and of course you know it's a perfect um, thing that this is also a very famous movie um, Boys Don't Cry with Hilary Swank you know the the story of Brandon Tina which I think um, now people have a different sort of remembrance of because of the way that we look at transgender culture now and we prefer transgendered actors play transgender roles yeah. but at that time this was a very important film and uh, the song was perfect to kind of note that you know so it's a it's a it's a queer anthem and it, it's a wonderful song it's a great song great song and also there's so much truth to it so mm. so these lyrics that I pulled out is I would break down at your feet and beg forgiveness plead with you then it says, so I try to laugh about it, cover it all up with my lies. And I just, I get that. You know what I mean? Because why can't men cry? Yeah. Like, why? Like, I talk about how I cry a lot. Mm-hmm. I cried today. Yeah. I cry all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes when I tell people, like, you know, I was like, yeah, I was listening to Don McLean's Vincent. And it just got really emotional thinking about my friend that passed away. Mm-hmm. And, and 
some people are like, oh, no, I get it. And then other people sometimes give you the side eye, especially guys mm-hmm. who they're kind of like, wow, you, you cry like that. Uh, so that's why I think this song is the title of the record. That's why I think it is, uh, like you said, this queer anthem, mm-hmm. because it's really just Robert laying it out there, yeah. being very open and honest. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever made someone have a cry cry? Uh, yes. Um, but, you know, it's not my uh, it's never my intention. But, you know, you you do come across that sometimes. <laughs> and it's very it's very important. I think people should let their emotions out. You know, if they don't, they, you can have a lot more problems. So I, I want men to be able to express themselves more. So yeah. it's good. Do you do you have any like what was the first time you've you've made a man cry? Um, I think uh, I think it might have been my dad actually. We've all made our dads cry. Yeah, That's a- well, I made my dad cry because um, he uh, is a very famous womanizer. and so he uh, was constantly leaving my mom over, uh, you know, throughout the seventies and eighties. But you know, he'd always come back and. You know, uh, when I remember one, the first time I really asked him not to leave and um, then he started crying and I was really shocked because I was like, I, I'd never seen that. You know, I'd never seen any man in my family cry. So it was really shocking. And then I then I realized I had an awesome power. <laughs> 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 and then then it was like this great thing, you know, that you could see that, oh, men really feel because men in Korea are very. um hyper masculine and they don't have that sort of emotional thing and, and they blow gaskets because they don't yeah that's why they love golf they can hit things you know <laughs> so it's definitely something that i didn't experience growing up as much but now like i i'm really appreciative of men who are emotional that goes into plastic passion now this was a b-side of boys don't cry peter uh play the first verse for me plastic passion is a hard to Actually, it's funny because bassist Michael Dempsey encouraged the drummer Lowell Tolhurst to speed it up and play this jerky drum pattern similar to the other new wave bands that he wanted to sound like. So this is like them right at the beginning. You're coming off that post-punk sound. uh, And this is actually one of the reasons why Robert Smith kicked Dempsey out of the band shortly after because he wanted it to sound like other bands and Robert wanted to to kind of create his own sound. Oh, interesting, which yeah. Is, which is really interesting. That is interesting. The lyrics have been rumored to be about vibrators or blow-up dolls, but mm. they're most likely simply about how inconsequential love and passion cheapens the experience. Um I kind of think it's about blow-up dolls because mm-hmm. it, the opening lyrics are plastic passion is hard to handle. Plastic passion is a sold-out scandal. Uh, if you got caught fucking a blow-up doll, that's a scandal. Yeah. 100%. And also, they're probably hard to handle. You know, the air yeah. consistency, maybe one half of the body is got more air than the other half. So it's like <laughs> it's like trying to fuck on a waterbed. Like, you know how impossible Oh, I that know. Is? It's really impossible. But I think the blow-up dolls, I feel like the technology's really improved now. So it's like, I mean, like we have the real dolls. Oh, there, there's awesome. no more blowing up anymore. It yeah, you don't have to like blow it up. a life-size human. I would just like, um, I want to get like a mold of my asshole and make it like, you know, you know, sell it at shows because good um, merch. that's solid. Merch. I mean, it's solid because if you get like a mold made and then um, 
Because that's always the first thing that everybody goes for on my body is my asshole. You would think that they would go for something else, but it's just straight there. Really? Yeah, that's like if, if you drop a pin in my locations, it's my asshole. <laughs> I don't know why. It's right there. So um, anyway, this plastic passion is probably about, yeah, I think you're right. It's about <laughs> blow-up dolls and the passion that is, is uh, I don't know, so maybe somehow false or elastic? Sure. I mean, I, 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 let me look at some of the lyrics real quick. Plastic passion is the lady's lover. It's uh, the marble mother. It is a diamond delight. A nadir of night is a gold guarantee is murdering me. Oh, so maybe it's like about vibrator jealousy. You know how sometimes dudes get jealous if you use your vibrator? And then they get kind of like, well, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know they don't I got like a penis. It. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no competition. There's just, just it's just an enhancement. But sometimes people are like against toys. No, I I know what you mean. I listen. I, I've I've I, I love sex. It's great. But no one knows you like you know you. Yes, yes. So, and I think toys are a good invention, especially if you're having um, uh, female to female sex. You you really do. I I really think that's the best thing about queerness is is having um, toys. I love sex toys. You got a lot of them? Oh, God. I actually unearthed a box yesterday from 2008 that I hadn't opened since 2008. It was like a time machine of sex toys. And there's some weird shit in there. What do you got? I had this thing called the octopus, which is like a robot that you put on the head of a cock. That's like it wraps around, like kind of like alien, like wraps around the head of Oh, stuff. yeah, yeah. Dude, and it xenomorph. Wrap, yeah, it's like it wraps around the head. And it, it I don't, so I have no idea what it does, but I, I'm charging it now. And um, I found. Uh, oh, you so you're ready to go tonight? As soon as this is over, yeah, you're, you're I gonna got. Put I'm, the I'm charging. I'm charging everything. I have uh, <laughs> a bunch of dildos, a bunch of uh, oh Kegel sizers, which were very hot in 2008, which were like barbells for your pussy. Yeah, oh, I remember Kegels. Yeah, yeah just turn them up, t- turn it up. Um, so I, I found all those. So I'm in a, I, I char- I'm charging everything. So we'll see what still works. Yeah, I can tell you've been telling me to rush through this. You're like, all right, hurry up. Go to track three. <laughs> track three, 10, 15, Saturday night. Uh, Peter, play. This is my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the whole record. There's this fading harmonic into a loud guitar solo from this song. Uh, so go ahead and play that for me, Peter. I heard so many different bands uh, when I heard this song. Mm-hmm. All the early 2000s, the whole new, I guess it would call like post-post-punk. I, I just mm-hmm. heard Interpol and yeah. all of these bands that I saw at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Now, speaking of it lyrically, I think this song is a perfect encapsulation of teenage angst and yeah. the torture of temporary sadness and what it feels like that it will go on forever. Yeah. Just everything Robert is saying. So when Robert Smith spoke about this song, he says this was written at a kitchen table, uh, watching the tap dripping, feeling feeling utterly morose, drinking my dad's homemade beer. My evening had fallen apart, and I was back at home feeling very sor- sorry for myself. And then I found out that he wrote this when he was 16 years old. Mm, mm-hmm. Just, just I mean, 16? Yeah, that's about as angsty yeah. as you can get. Yeah. When I was 16, uh, I took LSD and uh, reenacted my own childbirth in front of my whole family. Wow. Yeah, it was great. That's we, great. We've never talked about it again. That's really great. Um, that's very creative. Thank you. It was, I like uh, that. you know, I did that sometimes that's what you do. You got to yeah. take your clothes off and you got to run three miles and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, wake your parents up and uh, and roll around the floor and go, ah, ah, ah. 
Ah, so, oh, that's yeah. great. It was great. How fun. Uh, I also heard a lot of like white stripes. Definitely. And black keys. Yeah, definitely. In that guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you something. How did how did you express your teenage angst? Um, I think Acid was a good one. Yeah. Acid was really good. Um, we would go to this place called Barrington Hall. It's not there anymore. It's in Berkeley. We would, we would like party with the UC Berkeley crowd. And uh, we would take tons of acid and tons. We'd do candy flipping, which is um, ecstasy and acid together. Oh, yeah? Which is like nuts. And um, some of my friends had gone to Père Lachaise in you know the cemetery in Paris and stolen a lot of graveyard dirt from Jim Morrison's grave. So we would like rub it all over our bodies, which is like so crazy. <laughs> We're a lot, a lot of patchouli. And it was really very goth, but also um, kind of dirty and kind of uh, expressive and um, yeah, druggy. But yeah. Fun. Um, all right. Well, then I wanted to ask you this: uh, like, what performers and artists influenced you early on? So while you were in the, your teens, like, like who were you like fucking with? Who influenced? Oh, you? Oh, probably um, Bjork from the Sugar Cubes. Oh definitely. my god, Sugar Cubes Bjork, the most adorable the human being yeah. I have ever oh seen, especially so with the Sugar Cubes. Yeah, with so the little cute. like little doodad hair. She had those I mean, little like puff balls. Amazing. Oh. like so cute. And then um, of course I love Bjork on her own. Oh, she's a genius, but. Um, definitely Bjork definitely David Bowie um, probably uh, well th- you know this particular song actually reminds me of the Stranglers who I also love too yeah um, a psychedelic furs major um, you know it- it's Susie and the Banshees I think really sort of made me feel like adult like that's the first time time I kind of thought about like darkness and goth and like that I might be goth kind of identifying that you're goth yeah. it's very important yeah <laughs> moving on to accuracy, uh, Peter, play the chorus. Accuracy. Accuracy. You know, at, in the 70s, guitars were so muscular and then thick, and you would hear, like, they would double track, sometimes, you know, sometimes just really, like, heavy on the sound, but this is the opposite direction where you just really have just one guitar yeah, and it's, it's very twangy and it's very hollow. And, um, I like the spareness of that. And then the percussive quality of the guitar when it comes to that. So to me, I think that's really, um, another part of, of the cure legacy is, um, the austerity of the guitar sounds. Nice buzzword. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Robert Smith actually said, this is the most perfect of songs because it has few words and little music. Uh, And it's said to be about the ease of seducing someone you sometimes love. Mm -hmm. Not all the time, sometimes. Right. Now let's talk Dom because I read you were once a dominatrix. Yes, yes. What was your experience in the whip crack and cracks world? I am not a good dominatrix, although I've gotten better with time. I'm much better now than I've ever been, and it's a proper thing to be a good dom when you're 51. So I think you come into a good space as a dom, like now in my 50s, I'm a better dom than ever, and it all it is is putting stuff in people's asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is, really. And it's just finding creative ways about that. What's the most creative way to put something in somebody's asshole? Um, you know, you go uh, from the top down and around. So if they're laying on their back, you, you do a little like up and over. Little squiggly do. Yeah, a little Howard Johnson. <laughs> or uh, you're eating their ass and then you slip something else in. 
Really? Yeah, they, before they even realize it. You know, you know what one of my favorite things was, and and we're, we literally yesterday was the anniversary of, of my friend Angelo passing away, mm. uh, and we used to love the idea of when a girl sucks someone's dick backwards. So you, so basically, like her nose is by the asshole, and then she grabs the dick and kind of like folds it mm-hmm. between the legs. Oh, good, good, good. It was. I, 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 it's called that, the it, silence of the lambs. Is yes. it really? You know what? <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. It's like the best. That's what it's called now. <laughs> That's what it's called now. Um, <laughs> I love you. All right, that goes into object. Uh, now, this was Robert Smith attempting to be knowingly unwholesome to write a sexist song. Uh, Peter, play a minute 56. But don't try to hold me because I don't want any ties. That's just an object in my eyes. This is probably one of my favorites on the record. Mm-hmm. I love these lyrics. Uh, don't try to hold me because I don't want any ties. You're just an object in my eyes. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty real. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty sexist too. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. It's 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 definitely something that I wasn't expecting from Robert from right. this record. I thought he was a very loving person and and sad and wanted to be appreciated. I didn't feel like he would throw that back onto somebody else. Yeah, and it's all, maybe it's sort of also kind of like a f- uh, he, it could also be him talking about himself in the third third person or you know like that he's the up he's actually the person that is being sung about. Sure, no, completely. You know, so it's it's kind of like this thing but I do like that that shift. You know, you want to hear like dimension in songwriting and and I think that's good. You know, it's like um I, I think the, what what's great about this song is it really goes the sound of it really goes with the the lyrics. Yeah, you know the music really match. No, and, completely, uh, it's great. So you've been very candid about uh, the different uh, relationships you've been in. You've yeah. non-binary, polyamorous, yeah. and and basically what some would call alternative sexuality. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Yeah. Does sexism still exist in those relationships? Yeah, it can. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Um, definitely. Uh, I think that there, are, especially like with submissive men, they kind of think, oh, well, I couldn't possibly be sexist because I worship women. And yet you you, you still find that they're objectifying you, even though they're sort of like they're worshiping your feet and they're worshiping this. and They don't care who they're worshiping. It's just, you know, generic goddess that they're just plugging into this idea of a person. So you do have weird instances of 
objectification from submissive men, which I think people have a hard time really wrapping their head around, especially submissive men, because they don't realize that it's that they're they're doing it. And so it's weird. I think that um, it, we've gone really far in terms of acceptance around different kinds of sexuality. There's relationships that I have that are no sex, only pain. That's kind of great too, where it's only uh, impact play, like only beatings, only um, you know, you're a horse. <laughs> only you're a dog. You're only like, which I think that's really good. So you have more variants. Oh, I think. Listen, I, I think sex is finally starting to be accepted on, and I hate calling it alternative scale, but just it, it's like the world is changing. This country has been so covered and we're still like there's still that 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 large part of the community that wants to keep it like the 1950s where mm -hmm. it's like you know we don't talk about it and, right. and now it's starting to become this awakening yeah. and you're starting to see people be very open i've always said this it's like sex is the one thing god gave us that he guaranteed was like this is something for you to feel good to enjoy mm -hmm. to really uh, be as as alive as possible because everything in your body is, is moving. So yeah. regardless if it's if it's with a man and woman or two men or in pain, it's like whatever we do that is that is what we're into. It, it's 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 your body, your time. You can do whatever yeah. the fuck you want, and yeah. and I think it's great. I was with a uh, dominatrix once. Uh, not much uh, happened. Uh, she tied me up and then like kind of cat pawed my penis for about mm -hmm. a half hour mm -hmm. and then uh, released my hands and then we had sex. But it was great. Yeah. Just that cat pawing was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It is fun. The latest thing that I'm doing is dirty old man play. Ooh, what so is that? So me and uh, somebody else, usually a guy, put on um, dirty raincoats and then go to like some kind of adult bookstore and jerk off like dirty old men like well, we have like you know uh some drink in a in a paper bag which is for me it's like water yeah and then we just like jerk off in like a, a you know in yeah. the in the aisles of something or like in like a coin operated booth yeah was, you're it, not doing this at a barnes and noble no 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 like a, you know just like one of those really sleazy um places um but it's really Circus funny of books yeah like they yeah that's not out there anymore but it would have been like a place like that yeah or we just do it at my house where we pretend we're at a bookstore it's really funny and it's so exciting you know like i like being a man <laughs> no it's it's like it's listen I, I i love being a guy but i can imagine like like sex has to be more like sensational for a woman. It's yeah, just, yeah. You have such a it's so such much a, stuff. There's so much stuff that yeah. like that we just have that one thing, and that one, and then the balls. The balls don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The balls are just there. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you know women really have it way better. Why do you think certain men uh, are submissive? Why do you think some guys are into being dommed? I think it's just um, a, a matter of preference and, and kind of like the personality thing. Also, men have to be action-oriented in the world, so they're responsible for a lot of things. So it's great to be um, on the receiving end, which is yeah. basically what submission is, is just to be on the receiving end. So it's kind of just a reversal in a way because men are required to be so dominant in the world no matter what it is. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's a reversal. I think it's also kind of a nice, like, you want to know your place. So it's a, I think it's, um, there's a lot of different motivations. Some guys really like financial domination because they feel like, uh, you know, all they're worth is their dollars. Yeah. So that's a kind of a, 
a fun trick to kind of put onto that, to sexualize it. But that can be really kind of weird too. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of different things. But yeah, submission, I think, is an important thing for everyone to learn how to do and to enjoy. But some people just don't. But yeah. guys love it sometimes. All right, jumping on someone else's train. Uh, this was the third standalone single the band released. And you can see why, because it is so fucking catchy. Peter, uh, play a little bit of it for me. It is said that it came about after a discussion Robert Smith was having with Susie. Is this, I'm, keep, am, I, am I fucking it up? Susie. Susie. Okay, perfect. With Susie from Susie and the Banshees about how some bands would just lazily jump on other bands' innovative styles and ride the success that they hadn't earned. Uh, but it's also about self-consciously conforming to fads or trends. Uh, and especially like the underground subcultures, um, like people were jumping on uh, the Cure's uh, goth train and started copying Robert Smith's look. And so that's so funny that he wrote this before that explosion really mm. happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mm-hmm. can hear that in that in that clip that we played. Uh, any thoughts on this? Well, I think that's really I think it's really great. I mean, I think it's like it's I think the song actually shares a lot with um, later Cure songs like. Um, Friday, I'm in love, just like heaven. There's a kind of that the thing that you hear a lot in yeah. here. So I love it sonically. I think that also that's got to be weird. Like if you're in a band and you're just you're you're doing stuff and you're very different, and then you look out in the crowd and everybody looks like you. Oh yeah, I love I love that. Like I actually um, was uh, touring with the Dresden Dolls and and the rise to fame, you know. And uh, I remember the instance we were playing the Roundhouse in London. And he looked out in the crowd and everybody was dressed exactly like Amanda and Brian. And it was so trippy. Like, because it's like you had both of them. They're very unusual, you know, on stage in this sort of like gothic um, sort of like Victorian thing. And then you look out in the crowd and they're all exactly the same. And and maybe that is something that's like kind of scary for an artist because it's like I just wanted to play my songs. But now I'm just looking at as people being me but maybe that's also great yeah like you have these armies at your disposal you know it's awesome have you seen have you seen any like let me rephrase that have you had any experiences like that where you've seen people like biting like what you've created i don't think so i mean i think comedy is very different i mean the way that i would say would be closer to me would be uh for me um having uh you know, there's a lot of great Asian American comedians who followed in my footsteps, like Bobby Lee and Aquafina, and and certainly Ali Wong. You know, so that's a great thing. You know, but it's different with music because uh, music has a kind of power where um, people want to emulate the band. You know, they they look at a band's style and they want to be that. Like, look at like Britpop, how everybody was wearing like their tracksuit zips all the way yes. to the neck with the necklace. Coming Basically, out. how Steve Byrne dresses. Yeah, yeah it's, that's <laughs> so Steve cute. Byrne wants yeah. to be an oasis, so it's he so wears great. that same zip-up. I love up. it. Yeah. It's so cute. I mean, it's like, um, you know, a style moment with a pop star or a rock star, they, they can really um, have have a huge impact on their fan base, on fashion in, in general. So I think that, you know, this song is appropriate for that kind of idea. Yeah. That maybe it's like, hey, it's my style. Yeah, you wanna, completely. You want to well, keep it to yourself. Was there any embarrassing trends that you jumped on? Oh, Go God. Ahead, shit, shit on your past. Come on. Well, when I was started, to do, I worshipped Paula Poundstone. 
And so I always no. wore like blazers no. and like a necktie. <laughs> Wait, do I remember this? <laughs> this is like before I was on television. Oh or my God. So this is like in the 80s. So I was doing comedy <laughs> in the 80s and I, I wore like blazers and neckties like Ellen. Yeah. Like in the, we were all the same, all the female comics. Dude, Paula Poundstone is still, I think she's was a genius. Cats, what is it? Cats, Cops and stuff mm-hmm. is still one she's of my genius. favorite specials. She's an amazing comedian and, uh, you know, just somebody that's so cool, but yeah, I I was definitely wearing a lot of bolo ties, which actually I do like. You so. can, you know what? Funny, like now you are so stylish. Mm-hmm. Like the second you showed up, I was like, dude, she's dressed exactly like I was hoping, <laughs> just rock star comic. And and it's like you can pull off a bolo tie. I think so now because, but also you're you know so much more about fashion. Like yes, you've really just. Been, I've been like probably out of all the comedians I know, you've been really at one of the forefronts of fashion. Thank I you. mean, with all the stuff that you've yes, done. Yes. And every time I've seen you, you look incredible. Thank you. So please put the blazer back on, <laughs> get the fucking piano tie. It's so good. Okay. Well, now it's like, oh, now it's an homage to Rick Ocasek. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I always want to dress like any member of the cars, whether it's Ben Orr or Rick Ocasek. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter, but the cars are very fashion. Anybody that was on Fridays, remember that show Fridays on oh, ABC? Oh yeah, of course. All of the music that's all very new wave and very like rockabilly too, and uh, v- their fashion is perfect. But the when they the cars were on there one time and they all wore like jumpsuits like Devo. Oh really? It was really cool. All right, that goes into Subway song. All right, so so legend has it that Robert Smith used to lie to people about knowing someone that was murdered on the subway, and this was a fantasy song about that. Mm. Uh, in my opinion, it's sort of a cool like 60s beatnik tone poem uh, with some snaps and some spy movie guitar. Uh, Peter, play uh, right at the end of the fade uh, when they really start to fuck with the listener. Like, why would he do that? Well, it's classic, like, hidden track um, jump scare. Yeah. It's a, it's basically just a jump scare. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you're playing a, a game on the deep web. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, I love it. This a uh, great song. Uh, but so he's talking about lying here. When have you gotten caught in a lie that blew up in your face? Um. Oh, I lied that I was in a college comedy competition. I was actually in the competition, but I lied about being in college. And uh, it was a college comedy competition, and I won. And the other person who won was uh, we we I won West Coast. Red Johnny and the Round Guy, who were like a comedy rap group, run won the East Coast, and then John Glazer um, of Districted won the Midwest. And so we all participated, and we all opened for Jerry Seinfeld. And that's how I got my first MTV uh, gig, uh, doing MTV's Half Hour Comedy Hour. But I lied to get in the competition. And so I eventually told them that I wasn't in college, although they didn't really care no, at that you point. Were, you were funny, so they yeah, didn't give a it shit. It didn't matter. But it was uh, I was really scared that it was going to be like this thing. But I, I, I came I came clean with it pretty soon afterwards. But it was, uh, you know, I was about the age that I would have been in college. I didn't even finish high school. So I was yeah, lying, man. lying. Yeah. No, dear, lie. There's there's a difference between like a lie that can hurt people and then a little fib. That was a little fib. You yes. knew you were funny enough. Yes. So that kind of blew up in your yeah, face, but kinda. I'll take that. Yeah. All right. And now on to the next song, which uh this next one really, really grew on me. Uh probably the most controversial song on the record, uh Killing an Arab. 
Uh, play the chorus, Peter. I'm alive. This was based on French existentialist Albert Camus' 1942 novel, The Stranger. The demo of this song got the band signed and was the first single released by them. Uh, At the time, though, it was met with controversy due to it being misinterpreted as being racist and encouraging violence and often had to be released with a warning sticker denying that. And then they also got a lot of flack for that again after the Gulf War and then again after 9-11. Uh, thoughts on the song? Well, I, I, I think the song really rocks. Um, definitely, um, I heard the live version on uh, the playlist you made me. And it's um, it's something that I think, you know, what happened is around that time, too, there was a lot of songs. They're sort of like, they were like incorporating like Orientalism. You have like Susie and the Banshee's Hong Kong Garden and you have, the, they did Israel and they did all of these different kinds of things about sort of like Orientalist themes. And um, this is like another one of those. And, you know, they wouldn't have been able to anticipate that there would be a whole like... Um, Muslim phobia. They wouldn't have anticipated 9-11. They oh, wouldn't would have, have known, yeah. Nobody would have known that this kind of thing would be misinterpreted. But you hear different kind of songs through history. Like there's another one called Black Korea by Ice Cube, which is in the uh, 90s all about um, the anger at Korean grocery stores. Sure. <laughs> you know, in, in South in Central. The, in South Central, yeah. So, you know, you have um, these instances of songs like this that are a real reaction. But this one is not. This is actually like the title's misinterpreted. So sure. it's, it's different because it's not a song about what it sounds like but then people are just going to twist that and take it on you know on face value i mean you call something killing an arab yeah they're just, i mean it's it's, it's not pretty, just like killing a person it's yeah. like it's being specific to a certain race you could see why there was controversy of course, around it of course but it's like something that like they wouldn't have been able to anticipate the islamophobia that was to come i mean who knew you know who knew so it's interesting um but you know i think that that's probably one of the reasons i was thinking why this album is kind of hard to find in its entirety in the streaming platform because that song is on there and it's prominently featured so i think that the uh the historians will try to erase some things like this because it's it's the image of it is is really unflattering to this a great band because yeah. it's not what they are. Not at all. So I think that there's there's just justified controversy, and I'm sure that was in the minds of the record company too when they released it because controversy used to be kind of something that sold records. Yeah. You know, and there was a kind of thing where you wanted to be as dangerous as you could, and there wasn't as much of a consciousness around social media and being woke and and stuff like that. So um, this kind of stuff was used to sell products in a, in a way back in that time. No, completely. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? Good morning. 
I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. What, what about you? What was your most controversial career moment? Um, I think that, like, it's, like, for me, it's a lot of um, the, the one time I, w- I was on uh, the Golden Globes with Tina Fey and um, Amy Poehler. And so I, the, uh, the uh, interview had just come out, the movie about North Korea. And uh, North Korea was, like, doxing Sony. Yeah, I remember that. That was crazy. And so I played, like, a North Korean representative coming to the Golden Globes and uh, because I wanted to take a picture with Meryl Streep. And so this whole thing, and then I got, like, really, like, I I think I was got canceled. (laughs) It was 2015, and I got canceled for, like, a day. And I was trending on. It was weird when it's weird when you're trending like number one on YooHoo, and you're like, "What? Why?" And yeah. <laughs> like something bad must be going on. So people were really pissed. But I actually think it was North Korea. North Korean bots kind of like got mad at the impression of like Kim Jong whatever. Yeah. And so that was probably the most like crazy. Um, but it was really insane for a while. Do you get flack from other Koreans like about some of the comedy and, and no. just it's never it's never no. come up? No, because um, it's such a honest portrayal of what Koreanness is. Yeah. But where I get it, issues is like from white people who are like, well, that's racist. What are you doing? Fucking a, white Asian, people, man. You do an Asian accent. It's racist. But I was like, well, my mom talks like that. So it would be weird if I didn't have an impression like yeah, that. Yeah, it'd be weird if your mom was like, hi, Margaret. <laughs> Let's go to the market. Yeah. It's a very <laughs> it's a very strange double standard in that. But I think, um, you know, it's sort of like you have to roll with it. Like as a comedian, we're just all like kind of in this different space now where we really have to uh, go uh, go forward and still try not to be afraid. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people who do that very well. So it's good. But it's it's something that we have to really deal with. No, completely. All right. Fire in Cairo. Uh, this dreamy and sexy song fits in with some of the other Middle Eastern-y sounds on here. Uh, there are some heavy-handed poetic suggestive lyrics like shifting crimson veil, silken hip slide, under my hand, swollen lips whisper, but the band were barely past their teenagers, so their entire love life up until then might have only been, you know, just like, you know, middle school shit. Uh, and also, good luck singing this part. Uh, Peter, play uh, Minute 15. love the song I think it's great and I think it's really it is that sort of the orientalist themes kind of continuing on and yeah it does it's it's definitely like the hollowness of the guitar sound and the percussion it's like um, you hear a lot of love and rockets or tones on tail like these sort of later uh, sort of incarnations of Bauhaus Um, it is the perfect sort of goth song with that kind of it does have like those um it, you know, Middle Eastern music is sometimes on a different scale, like sonically. Yeah. So it's it's definitely like you have these different sounds, these different chords. And um, I think, yeah, it's a really great, great snapshot of the era. No, I what I, I love those lyrics. Uh, I really do. It's just it's it's some of the stuff. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Now, you've written in depth about your early issues with brutal bullying and negative sexual experiences. When did you first feel beautiful and accepted? I think like it really had to probably be in um, my uh, late 20s. Like it didn't feel it didn't feel great for a while. And it's unfortunate because I really missed out on the sort of feeling young and beautiful. But, uh, you know, you have to claim it for yourself. So maybe around 27, 28, then I started to really understand. Um, but uh, when you're um, growing up, it, it's, it's very difficult. And also, you don't, if you don't see a lot of Asian Americans like you on TV and in movies or whatever, it's hard. I didn't have a sense of, like, other Asians in show business until I delved into uh, Hong Kong cinema really deeply in, in my 20s and then sort of got a sense of like these other movie stars and this other world. So um, it took me a while, but yeah, I, I definitely had to come to it later. So what was the hardest thing to overcome then? I think just feeling like body issues, like feeling um, sense of dissatisfaction with where I was like physically um, and and really like, like misusing exercise and dieting is, is a sort of a form of punishment you know, for the body, and that's not the right way to go about it. So now I have a much more of a holistic, like, sensibility around all of those aspects of my life, yeah. and it's really helped, but it's certainly something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Has that affected your art? I think it's always going to, um, but in comedy, you can look whatever the fuck you want. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you could. this is the profession where you could, the shittier you look, yeah, the funnier the better you it are. Is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like people don't even, they don't trust a pretty woman on stage. They just don't. And so that, that there's like, you know, beautiful women in comedy that have to overcome. It's like a disability. Yeah. You know, and a lot of w beautiful women in comedy have, have done that very successfully. Um, but yeah, you do have like this moment of distrust if you have a beautiful girl coming on stage as a comic. And people are like, what? No. <laughs> yeah, completely. All right. Going on uh, to the next song, Another Day. Uh, this one was okay. We're going to pass through this one because this song is literally about seasonal depression. Uh, it's a great driving song but very sad so uh, we're going to skip it uh, going on to Grinding Halt uh, Peter play the chorus at 46 seconds stop shot All right, so this was written by the drummer, uh, but then Robert Smith cut off each verse lyric after a couple words to highlight its meaning about decay and apathy. Uh, I know that this song is about sad shit, but mm -hmm. it's really upbeat. Yeah. Musically, not lyrically. Um, mm -hmm. Were your thoughts on it? It is. It's poppy. It's boppy. It's, it's actually very upbeat, and it's kind of like... Um, you know, it, it's funny because y you almost don't hear the sadness. I don't, even though the lyrics are s sad. But it's not, it, it is, it's quite a happy song. Yeah, very happy. Let's talk about the Grinding Halt, though, just mm -hmm. the title. So uh, I know you've had a bunch of negative experiences around your 1994 sitcom, All American Girl, mm -hmm. which reflected your stand-up at the time, but our listeners want to know what happened. Can you please share your experience? Oh, well, I, um, so I had a TV show, but it was really, I was a comic that, I was really dirty comic, and I, you know, I was flourishing on um, HBO, but when they tried to translate it into a Disney television show, ABC, that, ABC yeah. it was really not, 
uh, the right thing. But I mean, I got a good experience working in television. I just didn't take the power to realize it was my show. You know, I, I kind of thought I was an employee, but I didn't realize I was a star. And that's the main mistake. But I think that, um, and that's where I got a really bad sort of body issues time because it was like the era of heroin chic, you know, so... I was like too fat to play the role of myself and so I had to like lose a bunch of weight and it was really hard and I got really sick and I think that my attention was so focused on being thin that I was like not paying attention to like writing or whatever and there were some good moments in the show we had a lot of good times but at the same time it was really challenging and for the Korean community it was right after the LA riots so they were very protective of their image and so it was very hard to kind of put across this idea of an Asian American show because they didn't want to be a part of that so it was um challenging but um you know when it was canceled it really made me realize like oh I've just got to work on being a good comic and then then my comedy career really flourished because I was much more focused on good material and writing and um getting out there and touring. And so that's when my life, I feel like, really began as a, a stand-up comic. All right. Uh, the next song is uh, something we might uh, be in very shortly. World War. Uh, Peter, play 35 seconds in. Mark Trent, me, stand by the land is looking on. Could be when I look along. This will be the big one. So this song and object uh, were put on the original three imaginary boys album by the record company, despite Robert Smith's objections, but he disliked them so much that he got them cut off from most use from most CD releases of this record. It's pretty much just another basic anti-war anti-fascist protest song. Good song. Uh, Thoughts on it. I love it. I love how driving it is. I love how rocking it is. It's definitely something that's, um, you know, very timely, even though it's written many, many years ago. Yeah. All right. We come to the final song on this record, Three Imaginary Boys. So this is the title of the band's UK debut, uh, which is from where they compiled most of these songs from the US debut. Peter, uh, play a minute 50 into the song, into the solo. Three imaginary boys singing my sweet child Just haunting. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. so powerful. And I feel like this is a great way to end the record because this is like, like I said earlier, like the cure kind of became goth from this. Like this yeah. is like them right at the beginning of where it's starting to get maybe a little dark. Mm-hmm. But it's like this song is just a perfect example of of that well because it's like with the chords you're actually walking down steps into the churchyard like you're going from the church into the graveyard oh (laughs) what a perfect analogy all right so this song is about a dream robert smith had it also seems to be about loneliness depression and possibly sigmund freud's idea that our minds are divided into three imaginary parts the id the ego and the super ego uh Pretty good. You, yeah. want, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Yes, yes. Uh, let me think of a song. Uh, facts. Facts. Facts, facts, facts. All right. 
It's a hard album to, to sing the songs to people. Okay. Due to the lasting controversy of the song Killing an Arab, on several tours and in the 2000s, the song had some lyric and title changes, including Kissing an Arab, Killing Another, and Killing an Ahab, with references to Moby Dick. Now, you are one of the most outspoken comedians that I know of and, and that I love. When did you or have you ever had to censor yourself? Um... Uh, I did a show one time that was broadcast across um, MGM Grand, uh, the uh, theme park in Orlando. (laughs) Epcot Center? Yeah. Okay. And it was so dirty. (laughs) And they got so mad at me. But I didn't realize it was going to be blasted across the park. It was a New Year's Eve gig, and it was uh, I had to do an hour. And they blasted it across the park. This is in the 90s, and it's so funny to think so I about. Just, I can just imagine you like, so just being a dom is just sticking stuff in other people's asshole. And yeah. It's just like. In the 90s <laughs> in like a theme park. But I don't know who they were thinking that was going to be there. So it's funny. But did you change your set? No, no, because I didn't know. I, did, I, I didn't know until after the fact. Oh, how great. It's so you, funny. Would you have changed if you'd known? I don't think I could have. I don't know if I could have done a clean set. I've never done a clean set anywhere. All right. Uh, last fact. Although they've been called goth forever, Robert Smith rejects that description and says he doesn't even really like the music described as goth. Ooh. Hmm. Ooh. Interesting. And as for the band's legacy in that genre, he says, I don't worry about my epitaph, for instance. I don't want to be remembered for anything in particular other than being in a pop group that was good. Mm. All right. So this is a two-part question. Uh, What do you want your legacy to be? I think that it was good, that it was funny, that people laughed, and that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. What would your goth name be? Oh, um, mm. Uh, like Ravenclaw or yes, something? Yes, Cynthia Scythe. Ooh. That's a good one. That's a great one. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Thank you. Oh, uh, uh, oh, it's Margaret Cho. Uh, oh, doogle, doogle. For all things Margaret, like tickets to her Fresh Off the Bloat tour, you can find that and all things Margaret. Go to margaretcho.com. Follow her on Instagram at Margaret underscore Cho and on Twitter at Margaret Cho. Don't forget, listen to her podcast, The Margaret Cho, every Tuesday, and it's available everywhere you get your pods. I'll be posting Margaret's Spotify mixtape, and you can find that on our website, the500podcast.com. Now, we just listened to The Cure from 1980. For new music this week, our music director, Little Maddie Pinfield, selected Night Riots. Formed in 2010, Night Riots are a five-piece alternative band from San Luis Obispo, California. Heavily influenced by The Cure and other 80s UK new romantic bands, Night Riots have made a name for themselves in the indie scene. Their first alternative hit, Contagious, made top 20 in 2014. Their latest album, which was released late last year, called New State of Mind, continues to show Robert Smith's influence on both their songwriting and vocal style. Check out that link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500podcasts at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, 
is Lil Wayne Week with his 2008 album, The Carter Three. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Next chapter podcasts.